welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome back to Turn the Page. I'm your host for today, Jen, and I'm joined by a fantastic author and uh, professor of writing as well. And I'm very excited to talk about both these things. Welcome to the show. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Great. Thank you for having me. My name is Julia Ridley-Smith. Um, I'm the author of Sex Romp Gone Wrong, a short story collection, and I also have a memoir um, that I published before this called The Sum of Trifles. I teach creative nonfiction and fiction writing at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Ooh, I'm very curious about that and uh, your journey to this book, um, and I'm always particularly interested by um, you know, how people's writing is influenced by their their own teaching writing to others. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about, yeah, how you came to this project and maybe how teaching writing has sort of changed either your strategies or your perspectives. Oh, I love that question. Thank you. Um, We just started back in the semester, you know, last week. So teaching is very much at the forefront of my mind right now. So the stories in this book, I wrote over a period of probably 20 years, maybe a little longer. I was writing other things as I was writing these stories, including other short stories. Um, But when it came time to kind of pull this collection together, I realized that I had 12 stories that shared um, themes and, you know, kind of uh, perspectives of women and girls. So that's how I started to pull this story together. I think that when I'm teaching fiction, one of the things that is really important for me is that as I'm working with the students and trying to teach them the importance of drafting, I'm reminded to kind of go easy on myself and remember that if the draft I'm working on right now isn't quite there yet, I can keep working, right? I can keep doing it again. Um, And so having to tell the students that every semester is always a good reminder for me that it doesn't have to be perfect on the first draft or even the third draft, (laughs) the fifth draft, you know, that it just, it's going to take as many drafts as it takes. That is such a good reminder. And I think it's addresses one of the things that makes writing the hardest, which is sort of like the perfectionism that can often accompany it. So, (laughs) oh, oh, man, the perfectionism, that could be like a whole hour discussion right there. (laughs) Yeah, it's a battle. I mean, and it's something that especially I mean, my students, they're wonderfully smart, you know, accomplished young people, and they they struggle with perfectionism. And so do I. So, um, you know, it's yeah, it's a great reminder. Hmm. I'm especially interested to hear that these stories were written over the span of a couple of decades, as you said, because um, I think collectively they really speak to all the different phases in a woman's life. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, in bringing the collection together, did you find any perspectives from things that you wrote a while ago surprising you or seeing them in a new way or like what was it like to revisit work and sort of like for the collection yeah it's sort of it's funny to revisit some of those earlier stories where I'm taking the perspective 
of, you know, a, a young woman as opposed to a woman in, in her prime as I am now. Um, and it, you know, it's just to be reminded of how many of the things that I was really worked up about when I was, you know, um, 25 or 12 or just some younger age that I just, I can't care about it anymore, <laughs> you know? Um, and yet there are things that I was worked up about then that I'm still worked up about. And I think one of the central themes of this book is desire. And I don't just mean sexual desire, although that's in there, of course, but just the desire for, you know, just wanting more life all the time, right? Or wanting to feel, you know, that you have these, you have these great appetites for mm -hmm. things in life, right? Whether that's um, food or sex or the fulfillment of, you know, being with someone who makes you feel lively and important mm -hmm. um, or whether it's about trying to find work that means something to you. So, you know, I think what has kind of stood out to me as I look back over these stories and as I'm continuing to to write new things is that, you know, I'm I might be 25 years older than one of these characters, but some of what I want is still the same thing. It's and that power of just wanting things, you know, doesn't go away mm -hmm. um, just because you've gotten maybe a bit smarter or more experienced or, you know, maybe even jaded. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you used the words uh, desire and appetite together, because I think that, you know, especially when we think of the way that women are acculturated into society, those are both things that we are very often asked to suppress <laughs> or to make Absolutely. it as possible. And so many of these stories are about women, I think, like reckoning with their appetites and their desires and sort of learning how to even not much, you know, apart from even fulfilling them, just recognizing them, you know, <laughs> or admitting them or starting to maybe a little bit kind of be okay with them. Right. I mean, I was definitely acculturated to that. Right. Don't don't eat too much. Don't be too loud. Don't make a show of yourself. Right. Don't you know, don't approach someone else uh, to ask for a date. Right. None of those that you weren't supposed to do any of those things. Um and I think some of that is changing, but not enough. Yeah, not fast enough. <laughs> no. no. Um, could you talk a little bit about what it's like um, moving from memoir to a short story collection? Because your memoir is also like not a collection of stories so much, but sort of a like it's a memoir through accretion of these kind of smaller pieces, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So what was it like shifting to um, like a fictional mode in that that style? I love that you use that phrase through accretion because it's just perfect. So, yeah, I mean, I guess technically it's a memoir in essays. So each of the essays, there are 10 of them. They can kind of stand alone, um, but they work together, too, so that, you know, you're reading a narrative across the book. And it's about cleaning out my parents' house. They were antique dealers and they had a lot of stuff. So the book kind of looks at... Um, you know, talking about what stuff means to us. And those, some of those same themes show up in some of my short stories. There's a short story in the collection called um, Et Tu Miss Jones, which is set in an antique shop and draws from some of the same material. Um, so having to do with the actual like 
thinking about the objects, but also grief for parents who have died. Those things enter into that story, but I'm in that story, I'm much more kind of exploring the one, the one central character in the story. Um, so I think, you know, I was I was writing fiction for a long time before I started writing those essays that are in that book. And I always thought of myself as a fiction writer. Um, and it wasn't until I'd finished the memoir and then actually managed somebody wanted to publish it that I started to go, OK, well, maybe I'm maybe I write two genres. Um <laughs> But it's been great because I it's forced me to think about and especially to go back to the teaching, you know, to be able to articulate to my students or to anybody who wants to talk about the books. What's the difference, you know, writing fiction versus writing creative nonfiction? And for me, fiction is often a means to explore character, whereas nonfiction is more of a it's a way to follow my curiosity, so about different stories or about kind of different ideas or history or just whatever I happen to be fascinated with at the moment. Hmm. That's so interesting to me because something I think about a, a lot, you know, is that like writing, yes, it's like the process of putting words on a page, but it's also all the pre-writing, which I think like kind of includes like a way of seeing, right? And you could see your own life that way or, you know, the lives of fictional people who you're imagining. Like, do you think that is going to be like a sort of, you know, sphinxy question, but do you think the way that you see the world influences your writing and vice versa? Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think that also, I was just talking with my students about this, that, that what you're calling pre-writing also is the writing, right? <laughs> it's, it's the way that you kind of write your, write your way into the story or the essay that you're trying to tell. Um, so much of the writing, you know, this was the, the big secret that I guess I have learned over the years is that what we see, what, what a writer publishes is just the tip of the iceberg usually, right? There's so much other writing that a writer does that never makes it out into the world. And a lot of that writing is exploratory, and it's the writing that you're doing to find the story or to do the thinking that you need that you're then going to show in a more kind of um, curated way in your essay um, or or that's going to be more shaped in a story. Right. So that's and that's the fun of it. I think for students, it's kind of that's overwhelming to hear because they're always thinking in terms of deadlines, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and having limited time. Um, but I think one of the great freedoms of being an older grown-up writer is maybe feeling like, well, I don't know if anybody's going to want to publish my thing or not. So like, I might as well just try to have fun and be interested in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to let it take the time that it takes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that. And I feel like it was a, an important lesson that I learned in grad school myself, you know, that when you get to product focus, you sort of forget the fact that like the process is also part of it and is also writing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it is part of it. And you have to let yourself try to be free in it because that's when the surprising things come to the surface that make the stories, you know, they just yield stories that are more lively and exciting rather than for me, if I try to have this really rigid plan or what the story is going to be. And I try to stick to the plan. Mm -hmm. It just sort of was like DOA, right? You know, it's dead, it's dead on arrival. If you try to 
for me, I'm sure there are people who are able to work with a plan and have all of that. And it turns out just dandy for them, but it doesn't work for me. <laughs> um, I have to feel like I'm just sort of, you know, that I've been let loose, you know, at the end of, I don't know, to, to run around and just kind of see what's going to turn up. Yeah. yeah. And to kind of link it back to the, you know, perfectionism issue, mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, it's just a way to kind of give yourself more space to play, you know, as opposed yes. to work. <laughs> because, yes. um, yeah, you can get really focused on like what you have to produce and forget that like you need to bring like a spirit of playfulness to it or you get so caught up in expectations, you know. <laughs> I love that word to play, right? And that's something I encourage my students to do. And I have sometimes have to remind myself like, okay, don't get too serious. You know, you, you need to play. Um, I like humor. It's sort of it's one of my main modes of, of being is just to find things to laugh about and to, um, you know, to see the humor in. So I know when I get too far away from that in my writing that I've kind of strayed. And that's usually when I start to feel like, oh, it's getting too tight and it's getting too rigid. Like, let me see if I can find something like a little wacky or a little silly or that's going to disrupt this kind of overly serious um, mode that I've. I've kind of worked myself into. I like uh, that too, because, um, you know, something that I feel like I I kind of also saw threading through the stories a little bit is like two flip sides, like the ways in which women often have to like perform in their own lives and then how that can create like some real feelings of like derealization or, or depersonalization or just like alienation in your own life. Like, can you talk yeah. to that a little bit? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love that. Having to perform in your own life, right? Who is it? John Berger in his book, Ways of Seeing, talks about that, right? How women are always, um, and I mean, he's talking about it in an art historical context, but it's it's true for us all the time that, you know, if you are around other people, anybody else, whether it's your family, your coworkers, whoever, as a woman, we are trained to perform in certain ways and it just kicks in. You know, so you're always kind of performing this role that is connected to some idea of what women are supposed to act like. Um, And it it can be quite an effort to try to get out of that. Right. Or to step out of that kind of role. Um, And and I'm interested by those moments in which, as you say, a woman either just sort of begins to almost be like floating up on the ceiling, watching herself performing the role and going either, you know, like, wow, I really don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Or, you know, maybe just kind of losing it um, at some point and and saying like, I can't do this anymore. Right. So I'm always, I'm interested in the pressures Mm -hmm. that can get created in a story that might push a woman to either you know, sort of like lift out of herself to watch what's happening or to just kind of lean in and and kind of get in the conflict. I'm really conflict diverse. So (laughs) it's been something I've had to learn over the years as I'm writing stories to like, what happens if I just kind of push the situation um, and let the awkward thing happen, Mm. right? Because that's another thing we're trained to we're we're all, we're trained to try to smooth over everything, right? We're we're supposed to make things okay for people, but what happens if we don't, or if we just <laughs> disrupt that, you know? 
I I love that idea and that way of thinking about writing too, because I am also a, a deep people pleaser, like I <laughs> all the time. And I'm really kind of interested in that framing of writing as like almost, you know, a kind of exposure therapy where you can do things on the page that you might not do like in real life right away necessarily, you know? <laughs> yeah. And some of the books that I, you know, that I've read in recent years that I have really gotten excited by have been books in which that kind of happens where, you know, a woman is sort of, um, where it's almost like you can feel the writer going, what, what, what'll happen if I put this, like, if I let this character go further, mm -hmm. you know, I had a, um, a couple of questions about specific stories. I don't want to, you know, spoil them for our listeners, but I do like some of them just really spoke to me in interesting ways. Um, Cleopatra's Needle. <laughs> I I went to NYU from 2001 to, to 2005, and I was very much like that dreamy girl hanging out at the Met, uh, just being romantic, you know, and yes. <laughs> hoping things would happen to me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about... Um, you know, I think like, how do I frame this? The way that like young women can relate to art and to romance and how that can be kind of linked. Like can you talk about like what went into building that story a little bit? Yeah. So I went to graduate school at Sarah Lawrence a few years before you would have been at school at NYU. And as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from around that area. I'm from North Carolina. So, you know, when I got to New York, it was just, it was the brave new world, right? It was like this place that I'd only seen on television or in the movies. Um, and so there was, there was not only the, I mean, there was this kind of like fascination with this giant city and this place that was, you know, romanticized um, in different ways in all the media that I had seen. And then there was the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which I would just was like so blown away. All of these, you know, things that I'd only seen in books. Um, and because all of it was stuff that I'd only seen in books or in the movies or on TV, you know, there was something that didn't seem quite real about it that encouraged that sort of like romanticizing that you're talking about. Um, you know, I mean, a fundamental part of being able to romanticize something is not really knowing the reality of it right <laughs> um and so when my character who's a, who's a young woman who's you know made some bad choices um and is now finds herself in new york city working at a kind of a temp job and she goes to the museum and i just wanted to you know we were talk er talking earlier about kind of ways of seeing right so i wanted that story to really get that sense of her kind of wide-eyed astonishment um, at this place where she's found herself and how that leads to her creating these possible scenarios for her life that are all, you know, pretty far-fetched. Yeah, it really, it, it captured what to me was like a really quintessential experience like of my early 20s, which is like wanting to see things um, and have new experiences and all that, but also kind of wanting to be seen <laughs> doing yes, those yes. things, you know, and like projecting a certain sort of self into the world or letting yourself imagine yourself in a particular way. Um, yeah, was that something that you kind of also think about when you're so, right? <laughs> so she's paying a lot of attention to, you know, what she's wearing and, you know, how men are seeing her. And she's looking at, um, you know, the way she looks at other people is, with that idea of how are other people presenting themselves? How am I presenting myself? 
Um, you know, because I think at that age, you're full of all this bravado, but it's masking a lot of uncertainty at the same time. Um, you know, so it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go out with in full swagger mode in my, in my, you know, my cute pants and my whatever, right? And people are going to think I'm awesome. And only I will know that I'm not actually awesome. <laughs> and that I don't know what I'm doing, right? Um, and then, you know, fast forward 25 years, and I'm like, I, I don't look awesome. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I just don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like for that reason that this that particular story is in such a nice dialogue with the first one. Uh, don't breathe, breathe, because mm -hmm. I feel like the you know, that's about some women who are, you know, a, a little bit more on in their lives. And to me, that story is also like kind of speaks to like, OK, well, who is the person underneath that performance that I I spent so much time on? And like, what do I actually want and what do my experiences mean, you know, and. Yeah. Like, what is it like to have to grapple with all the phases of life, you know, in these different stories? <laughs> well, and that's it, right? It's like at different stages of life, we're performing so many roles that by the time you're, you know, I'm, I'm what I'm calling 50 fun years old. Um, <laughs> it, it, it just becomes, it's like you have these just crusts over yourself of all these roles that you've taken on over your lifetime. And, and most of them don't fit anymore, right? Um, you know, like one of my roles has been mom and I st I'm still a mom, but my, my son is grown now, you know? So like, I don't have to do that role the same way I used to. Um, and I just see a lot of women who are around my age who are grappling with, you know, changes in their relationships. Um, they're getting divorced. They're coming out as queer, where maybe they weren't living that life before. Um, you know, the kids are growing up, they're changing jobs, or they're pursuing a career that they couldn't really um, do when they were younger, either because of kids or money or, you know, uh, being stuck in a patriarchal marriage paradigm. Um, so it's really actually exciting. I'm kind of really enjoying this phase of my life because I'm seeing all of these women I know just kind of coming into their power or their, you know, their not give a F-ness, um, <laughs> if I can say that on the, on the library <laughs> podcast. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so it was really interesting to get into that story because within it, you know, you have these women looking back on being younger and some of the ways in which they could or couldn't show up for each other. Um, and I think that's another really great thing about being older is that you hopefully maybe you've learned who to keep in your life and who to kind of let go, who's not helping you out. Um, I spoke to um, Maggie Smith a while ago, and she referred to it as um, coming of age in your middle age. And I'm like, wow, that really speaks to like where I feel like I am where I am and am and headed, you know, <laughs> and yeah. like that first puberty feels like it's so much about like, who do I want to be and trying to be that person? And then now I find myself sort of like, okay, well, who am I, who am I actually underneath all of those? Like, yes, yeah. that's a great, that's a great way of differentiating. It's like, it was, who do I want to be? And also who do I want to want me or who do I want to want to be with me? Right. And now it's just kind of more like, well, 
let me see what I am and I'm going to work with what I got because I tried for however many years to like change it or modify it and it didn't really work, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of about like, I think, finding compassion for yourself. And I also think that's like a strength of this collection is that it does, I think, challenge you to sort of like feel compassion for these women and for yourself by proxy in all of the phases of your life. So that's a wonderful gift. And, you know, thank you for that. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying that. I, I love that. I hope it does that. You know, I'm, one of the things that I really, you know, want when I write a story is for the the main the main character in particular but really any character to just kind of not be one way right that there's always there always this sort of tangle of mixed feelings and um mixed inclinations and compulsions and hopefully that's what makes them interesting and seem human to a reader yeah Thank you so much for joining us. Um, are you working on anything else at the moment? I know your semester just started, so that's kind of like that kind of takes up everything for a little while. But <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I recently have tried to really stay committed to my writing process, even though I'm teaching and I'm taking out this new book and everything. Um, so without going into a ton of detail, because I, I'm superstitious about talking it out, you know, but I am working on a novel that is about Delia, who's one of the main characters in several of these stories. Um, so it's kind of, it's it's about her and her experiences during the pandemic. Ooh, um, sounds really interesting. And, you know, not to, you know, get superstitious about it, but if you want to come back and talk about that project when it's come to fruition, because I love the idea also of finding a character through short stories and then giving them a longer story of their own. That's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, I love that too. I, lo I love novels that do that. So thank you for that invitation. I'd love to come back. Great. All right, listeners, it's your turn now. Uh, you're going to check out Sex Romp Gone Wrong, which is a great title and a great story within the book. Um, it's going to be available by the time that you hear this. So please head to your favorite library or independent bookstore, wherever you like to go. Thank you very much. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.